Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Dr. Charles Goldman. Your host for today's program is Ed is Traveling. And uh, with me, I have uh, Senator Jim Carlin, a friend of mine, um, in spite of his politics, um, <laughs> who's a Republican uh, Iowa State Senator from uh, the Sioux City area. And I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad we finally got you to come on. <laughs> and um, first, let me uh, thank our home station, La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 in Des Moines, Iowa. And as we know, Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Thanks to our other stations around the country that rebroadcast our show, including KHOI 89.1 FM in Ames, KICI 105.3 FM in Iowa City, KPIP 94.7 in Fayette, Missouri, and WHIV 102.3 FM in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, And just for your purposes, Jim, that is uh, a public access station owned by a – Infectious disease person, KHIV, down in New Orleans. Uh, you, you can. Are you serious? I'm serious. No, he is. He's a very, a very interesting gentleman down there. Um, you can also listen to the Fallon Forum online and as a podcast. You can also get that at the www.fallonforum.com. I'd like to thank some of our business partners here in the Des Moines area, Gateway Market and Cafe at 20th and Woodland in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. As you all know, that's Ed's Grocery Store. has a wonderful cafe for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has an excellent catering service, and that's the Gateway Market and Cafe. Diversity Insurance at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. For your home, car, property, and life insurance, stop by. No appointments needed. Uh, Community CPA with offices in uh, Des Moines and Iowa City for all of your tax and accounting needs. And the Cinco de Mayo Restaurant on Southeast 14th Street in Des Moines. Serving authentic Mexican food with great service at affordable prices. So we're going to kind of split the show up into uh, three segments. We're going to start with uh, Jim and I talking about some of the things that are going on uh, under the dome uh, okay. th- that aren't on the front page of the Des Moines Register or lead uh, you know, for the local media. And if you'd like to join us, uh, like to join the conversation, you can call us at 515-528-8122. So I asked uh, Senator Carlin to, you know, perhaps bring to uh, our listeners uh, something more that's going on uh, that he considers substantive in in this session, um, and in particular on the committees that he's been working with directly. So mm-hmm. I'll ask Senator Carlin if he wants to, you know, sort of talk about some of the things he feels are most important that we're not necessarily hearing much about. Sure. Um well, as we as we had talked before we got here today, we had talked about a constitutional amendment that would require a two-thirds majority House and Senate to raise taxes on Iowans. Um, I've been working on a senior property tax bill for this is my third year. It looks like seniors on fixed incomes under double the poverty level uh, are going to see their property taxes frozen. Um, I've also been working on a bill that addresses the, the problems associated with IEP behavior placements in our public schools. Um, you know, most of, the, most of the gen ed teachers don't have any background or training in, in addressing children with behaviors, and it makes it very, very difficult to run a classroom, manage kids with behaviors, and, you know, and still be evaluated and assessed overall when you're having to, uh, to deal with that. So um, those, are, those are off the top three main things that I've been working on. So maybe we can talk about the constitutional amendment in terms of what would be required to raise income taxes. Okay. Well, so the underlying premise here is, is you know, I, I, uh, I've considered how much people actually pay in taxes. And I don't know if people really take into account how much the government taxes them. So, you know, you have federal income tax, you have state income tax, you have sales tax in Iowa, it's 8%. You have property taxes. And in Sioux City, that's, you know, 2% of the value of your home, which is is pretty expensive. But then, you know, if you were to take a base year uh, from 2008 to 2013, the rate of inflation was 19%. So if I had $60,000 in 2008, my $60,000 is now worth under $50,000. So that's kind of a way of taxing people that I don't know if they're really aware of. And then you take into does that, account. Does that calculation extend to uh, minimum wage? If we take that's a fair question because I've been in favor of raising the minimum wage to reflect the cost of living, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, it's it's not fair 
to let somebody live on less money because um, it doesn't reflect. You know, those are when was the last time it was raised? You know, in Iowa, I don't know. No, it's been a long time. I it think it's been like ten it. years. Right, and uh, they should have an increase in minimum wage that reflects the the cost of living increase. And then you throw in now. Now this one's going to get you. Mm-hmm. Corporate taxes go into the price of every good and service Iowans buy. Mm-hmm. We have some of the highest corporate taxes in the country, but the reality is those corporations just pass the bill for those taxes to the consumer. Or they have other mechanisms by which to lower the effective rate, I would assume. Well, uh, no. It, you know, Obviously, that's it's going to vary from, from one thing to the next, mm-hmm. but when your, tax, when your corporate tax rate in the state is was 12%, we lowered it to 10. Mm-hmm. Now, the real effect of that is the poor and middle-income people of this state pay those taxes. As and so they also pay tariffs. The result of increasing tariffs is what we're They seeing. would. Right. They would pay tariffs. But um, so when I add all those things together, and, you know, and then you throw into the mix, the cost of their health insurance has probably tripled mm-hmm. since Obamacare. Now, and then I throw into the mix the federalization of student loans. So our college graduates coming out of school saw their tuition double, saw the interest rates that the government charges being equal or greater than what the private sector was charging them. So when I add all those taxes and I add the cost of health insurance and I add student loans, what am I left with to buy a car, to build, to uh, to buy a home, to take care of my family? Probably under 30% of my income is, is remaining, mm-hmm. maybe even less than that. So, you know, people say, where's the middle class gone? Well, it's my position that the government has literally decimated the middle class through all of these taxes. And, and then, of course, there's a the cost of regulations as well, which some regulations are needed, but, but that's built into the cost of goods and services. So, so what we did here was um, we, uh, we put together an amendment that would require a two-thirds majority of House and Senate to raise personal income taxes on Iowans. So that would either be by bracket or income level. Now, it doesn't mean the state of Iowa cannot raise taxes. Mm -hmm. You're just not going to raise taxes on personal income taxes. So, you know, and what's that going to look like? This, the purpose of this bill is let's get the conversation started on how to limit government. So I don't mean to keep rambling here. No, that's fine. I mean, I I think this is an important uh, issue. Well. And we haven't heard anything really about it. Well, I, I don't, I, I don't pretend to know why we haven't heard anything about it. But there was an interesting statistic that I heard from 2008 to 2018. Over that period of time, consumer price index was 15.2 percent. Mm-hmm. All right, but the revenue growth for the state was 34 mm-hmm. percent. Now, why is it the state is taking in almost over two times the rate of inflation? In, in, in revenue growth and expenditures. Well, that means the state is taking incre- an incrementally bigger bite out of Iowa's personal income taxes. And, you know, when you look at that, you know, at what point do we start to say enough? And your idea obviously would make it a bipartisan issue to raise taxes because you there's no way that you can get a supermajority without crossing over. Someone mm-hmm. has to cross over depending on which right. way you're going to go here. Well, to get two thirds, I think it'd be. I think it's a pretty, pretty high bar. But I think mm-hmm. in an, you know, in an instance where there where there is a fiscal crisis, you know, that's understood by both sides, right? That they, that they would. And what's the reaction been to this suggestion? You know, up to this point, we haven't gotten a whole lot of media attention. I would imagine when it hits the floor, that's going to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. But uh, well, what is your caucus? What is the Republican caucus? So we have not had a subcommittee on it yet. I think mm-hmm. once we have a subcommittee on it, it passes out a subcommittee and gets into committee and ways and means because ways and means is not subject to the first funnel. Mm-hmm. So this is coming up. Once it gets into a subcommittee, uh, I'm sure it will get some attention. And once it gets to the ways and means committee for a vote, it'll get more attention. But do you think you you would get a majority and it would have to be? A Republican majority yeah. to, no, I th- to acquiesce to this. I think it's going to be pretty hard for a Republican to vote against freezing uh, income taxes. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think most most Republicans generally would be in favor of limiting taxes on Iowans. Are there any states that have analogous restrictions on raising income tax? Good question. 
Don't know. I'm sure there's. I'm sure mm-hmm. there's some out there. Do you know who I got this idea from? Uh, Grover Norquist. <laughs> <laughs> I got this idea from former President Ronald Reagan. He uh-huh. tried to do it in California. Yeah, I thought it was a great idea. So I said, "Well, why not Iowa? Why not us?" And then again, I do think that it would um, clarify for the Iowan who's responsible for this as opposed to mm-hmm. just becoming, you know, we kind of go back and forth between whoever's in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, if the reality is, is that that is the only way to raise revenue, then mm-hmm. it would be responsible to do that. Um, what other changes? Responsible if, yeah. it was a, if, it, if it was a crisis type situation. But I mean, what other things would you like to see changed about Iowa's tax structure? So you lower well, corporate taxes to 10%. Okay. Corporate taxes went from 12. They're going to go to 10%. I don't think mm-hmm. they're there yet. Mm-hmm. The tax reform bill that we passed last year lowered corp, or lowered personal income tax rates a right. little bit. Although know. that would be negated to some degree by the change in the federal tax law. Yeah, we're going to get rid of federal deductibility, which yeah. I don't know that I'm going to save any money on the other side of that. Correct, because you can be limited to $10,000 uh, deduction between property taxes and the your income taxes. Right, but you know, it's just like you said, the deduction you get for paying your federal income taxes in five years is going to be gone. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, here's the reality. Um, Iowa ranked, I think, 41st in business climate. Mm-hmm. Now, the big deal about that is if, if you're not, if you don't give a businesses a favorable climate to come to, they're not coming. And particularly in our part of the state, so like right across the river, we've got Dakota Dune, South Dakota. Mm-hmm. All of our physicians, our accountants, our contractors, they left and they took their revenue with them mm-hmm. and they took their tax revenue with them. And it makes it harder for our part of the state because they're our neighbors. I mean, if you want a 9% pay raise, just drive across the river. Right. It's one mile away from you. Well, that really hurts us. So, I mean, that's that's one of the realities we have to deal with. And there's some other uh, counties uh, in the state that have the same issue where their neighbors have much lower taxes. So if I want to attract businesses to come to Iowa, I mean, you know, Democrats always are up in arms about tax credits. Mm-hmm. Well, the reality is if I can't make money, I'm not coming. And, you know, unless you give me a break somewhere, I'm not coming. And in Sioux City, we know that very well. Right. So, well, I think the, in in the aftermath of the Amazon deal with New York City falling apart, there's been mm-hmm. a little more attention paid to what is the true value of tax credits in terms of job mm-hmm. creation, how much it costs, um, and also the fact that there are some states getting together to with an interstate compact agreement to not low you know continue mm-hmm. to lowball or I should say maybe highball the tax mm-hmm. credits to steal companies away from. Other states, mm-hmm. because all you're doing is driving up the cost of doing of getting people to do business here, and your government getting to do business. And as you can see, mm-hmm. like with Foxconn in Wisconsin, they're going to walk away with billions. I'm not familiar with. Oh, that was the the much ballyhooed deal uh, early on in the Trump administration. Uh, Foxconn mm-hmm. is the you know like the biggest electronics and you know, personal electronics manufacturer. Okay, and they claimed that they were going to put five thousand jobs up in Wisconsin, and now it's. It's going to be somewhere in the range mm-hmm. of a couple of hundred. Oh, jeez. But they, they still have the money. And other right. companies have walked away, actually, right. with the credits after – before their time yeah, we, is even we up. Obviously, I, I think Iowa needs to do a better job making sure that we're actually getting some money back right. for the tax credits. Well, we I think you're, you're, you're someone who is very fact-oriented. And I think right. you know, well, we, need, we need, when we're giving tax credits, to look at – have someone do the accounting. Mm-hmm. Give us some scenarios. Suppose they walk away in five years. How much have we paid for these right. jobs? Because if if you overpay per mm-hmm. job, yes, people are working, but essentially it's not that much different. I know you hate this word. It's not that much different than, than socialism, which is basically you're buying private companies, you know, mm-hmm. to and you're paying you're paying their cost of their workers. That's not capitalism. That's supposed to be part of their overhead. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I mean, that, that's an interesting way to put it, comparing it to socialism. Well, I don't know if I agree hear, with that, but we're going to hear a lot about socialism in the, in this election. So, we um, <laughs> sure are. Let's 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 take a break here, um, okay. and when we come back, uh, we may uh, continue with uh, uh, Senator Carlin. We may uh, have a call-in guest um, 
from the Arab American Institute who will be speaking locally, uh, and we'll just sort of see who's who's available. And, and uh, yeah, Senator Carlin will be, I'm sure, happy to comment on the uh, on the, uh, happy to comment the Middle on East about anything. exactly on the Middle East <laughs> issues. So uh, we'll be right back. This is the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music, and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515-246-8149. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa Farms and Iowa Producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. To the Fallon Forum. This is Dr. Charles Goldman, uh, substitute hosting for Ed. I'm here with uh, State Senator uh, Jim Carlin, who uh, is, we're going to have him uh, back on talking about uh, issues under the dome uh, in a little bit. And um, we're next going to uh, talk with a uh, Dr. James Zogby, and he is the uh, co-founder of the Arab American Institute. He is going to be here in Des Moines on Wednesday speaking at the uh, Des Moines Valley Friends Meeting Hall over on Grand. And he's going to be speaking on undoing the damage we've done across the Middle East, the current situation, and what we can do about it. Uh, Dr. Zogby has been involved in U.S. policymaking uh, about the Middle East for over 40 years, most recently worked with the Obama administration on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. And if you'd like to call in, uh, either speak to Dr. Zogby or to, uh, to Senator Carlin, uh, you can join us at 
Dr. Zogby. Dr. Zogby. Okay. Well, I think maybe what we'll do is we'll try to get back uh, Dr. Zogby back on the uh, on the line. And since I have Jim right here, um, can we talk about some of the things that I know have really um, been important to you with the uh, education committee issues? Sure. Um, well, as I said at the beginning, the federal law mandates um, IEP behavior placements. Now, what, what that means is kids with uh, special needs kids would have issues related to behavior, some of which can be traumatic in origin, uh, some of which not. Um, the federal law requires our public schools to have these kids mainstreamed you know whether or not that's a good fit for their uh, their behavior difficulty or not. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you literally have teachers, in some instances, chasing kids around the classroom uh, while they while they could be teaching other kids. Mm-hmm. And um, th- the problem is, it's affecting the morale. If you if you talk to any public educator in the state, they will tell you that it's a huge problem. And so. Um, for you know, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I could tell you anecdotal but, stories. Jim, I'm always a little leery when we say if you talk to anybody because you know the president's always talking to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're weighing in on policy. Okay. So. Well, maybe that's not the best way to put it. But uh, yeah. if you if you talk I, to most public school educators, they would say this is the single most significant challenge they face in the classroom today. And when I looked into it, mm-hmm. I, I didn't really see the ball moving down the field too much. Yeah. Uh, you know and. So the idea, obviously, we can't change federal law. Mm-hmm. But I, I talked to the chair of the education committee, Amy Sinclair, this, and uh, I, I asked her, what, what could we do? And mm-hmm. she said, well, we could do a work study and make recommendations to federal legislators. But the point of it is, let's get some real participation from the people on the ground dealing with these situations, get some superintendents, board members, parents, teachers, uh, mental health specialists. And let's get some real recommendations on how to make some incremental changes to have a more graduated process, which reflects the realities that the, of where the kids are, mm-hmm. you know, in their behaviors. And, you know, not just try to force it on the teachers or force it on the kids, but let's, you know, let's recognize where they are. And um, Well, I think this is another example. I mean, I, I, I've been teaching surgery for a long time, and we operate under a lot of mandates. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of philosopher kings among those mm-hmm. who, you know, make education policy who have very unrealistic ideas. And, and the idea of mainstreaming was to be beneficial to the child who would used to be sure. put in the special ed class. Absolutely. The other problem, of course, is that the epidemic of spectrum disorder kids that's hit the United States it's gone off the for charts. reasons that I don't think anyone totally understands, and it's There's not just about redefining the diagnosis. Right. Now you have a classroom in which what do you do with these behaviors? And mm-hmm. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll get back to that. We'll get back to this. Dr. Zogby, I hope, is on the line now. Dr. Zogby. Hello? Okay. So we're still having problems. Let's go back to... Okay. Um, well, I, and I like the idea that instead of just making this about us versus the feds, let's find out what the facts are. And as right. you say, from the people who are having to uh, enact this policy. Mm-hmm. and. I'm not even sure. You know, I've, I've never been educated in a in a setting like a rural setting. Mm-hmm. I mean, where do you get the resources in a rural setting to be able to uh, teach the teachers how to handle that kind of disruption? You don't. Yeah, and so it it's yeah, it's something that's easier said than done. You can't in ask. Yeah, you, know, you can't ask teachers with a, with no training mm-hmm. in this type of stuff to be responsible and educate kids where they don't have any background and. You know, some pretty challenging instances of kids with profound disorders. I I heard a story of a woman who uh, had a little girl in her class mm-hmm. who had been molested and raped repeatedly as a toddler. And uh, by the time she got to be age 11, like socially completely, completely isolated from, from everybody. Mm-hmm. And the teacher thought, you know, if I could just mother this child back into health and emotional health, you know, I might be able to. 
you know, get somewhere with her. Mm-hmm. And she did that. And, and it worked till the day she said no to that little girl. And that little girl literally chased her around with the room with scissors and tried to kill her. That yeah, teacher's I, no longer teaching. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I mean I, that I, might sound like some and I'm not trying to paint that with a broad brush, mm-hmm. but teachers all over the state of Iowa can tell you some pretty terrible stories. And I understand the parents desire for inclusion. Uh, I believe in that. I just don't think the process as it is now bears any semblance to the reality. And the best legislation reflects the realities of what people have to deal with. So, yeah. Well, I think that, as I said, I think that's a worthwhile thing to look at and to present something to that can work within the regulations but would help right. Iowa students of all types. And the the other thing I guess you've been working on is the mm-hmm. education savings accounts. Right. And can you tell us a little bit about sure. that? Sure. Well, you know, I, I would say most I, – I would say it's, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, if I have a pay, if I have to pay, I should have a say. And it really comes down to that. So if 60 percent of my tax dollars goes to K through 12 and regents and community colleges, 60 percent of my Iowa state tax dollars goes to those three things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fair characterization. I'm not saying I'm perfect on the math. Yeah. All right. And whatever that looks like. And you're going to tell me that that none of that money can be used towards educating my own kid when 60% of my tax dollars is going to educate other kids. I just don't think that's equitable. So what what they're doing is now the average average student in Iowa, state and federal subsidy of the average student in Iowa right now is $14,600 when you add those, you know, the federal and state money together. Mm-hmm. What this would do is this would take $5,000 of the state money and if a parent desires to enroll their child in a parochial school or a charter school, they'll be given pretty much like a debit card mm-hmm. and be able to apply the five thousand dollars to the cost of that school instead of you know instead of the public school and the other revenue that would have gone to that child will go to the public school you know mm-hmm. one of the complaints you hear is the the classroom size in our public schools our teachers will tell you you know i've got twenty eight kids in my class and i've got i e p kids on top of that and you know, what, what are you going to do for me? Mm-hmm. And uh, so this way they would get $9,600 of that money and not add to the, uh, you know, n- not add to the classroom size and get the benefit of that money. So I think it's a win-win for all concerned. But well, know, I think, obviously not everybody shares that view. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I think that it, it, it runs afoul of the issue of the Establishment Clause, which has always come up with the issue of funding, of mm-hmm. even indirect funding of, of parochial schools. It also raises the question of if you are accepting money from the state, then do you have obligations that come with that? In other words, that you, now you're bringing in regulations that the state has that you wouldn't normally have to mm-hmm. abide by if you're operating totally privately. I think they're already regulated to a very large extent. I don't know that. I mean, I, I guess the main difference would mm-hmm. be private schools. If you, if you have a kid who's a real problem kid, yeah, you, you can show them the door. Public schools—they don't have that luxury. They, they pretty much have to take everybody. Yeah, and I—I and I, I think I understand that you know the people who use. Well, I mean, I'm you know, I'm paying for daycare for a four-year-old. I mean, mm-hmm. that's in essence the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know that I'm funding. I'm, it's, he's not in the education system yet, but mm-hmm. you're having to fund it with really no uh, no break from mm-hmm. the tax structure. Um, I. I can't say that personally I have a great problem with this idea. Mm-hmm. I just think that it would be highly contentious and inevitably would end mm-hmm. up in the courts. Uh, would you assume that? or um, No, I, I would assume that you could expect a lawsuit from the teachers union. Mm-hmm. Um, when I proposed my my constitutional uh, tax or constitutional Second Amendment for uh, not being able to raise taxes without a two-thirds majority, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. guess who the lobbyist was? Who showed up and ardent, ardently opposed it? Um, I presume, as you're saying, from the it was a teachers' union lobbyist. Yeah. Well, this is well because know. it's money that wouldn't be directed. It's not going to get to them, right? And you know, I mean, at, at some point, you you have to recognize that there's a lot of pieces to the state pie, and mm-hmm. as best we can, you know, 
we have to consider the interests of all those pieces to the pie. But there's another piece to the pie that gets very little consideration, and that's the people who actually pay the bills. So you want me to pay all these bills, but you don't want me to have any choice where my own child is concerned when you're knowingly putting me in a situation where my child's going to be in a classroom where there are challenges to the classroom that are going to diminish my child's education and and do. And I've actually talked to public school teachers who enroll their kids in private schools for these very reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think we'll take a break here. And uh, hopefully we can get Dr. Zogby back on. If not, there's uh, plenty more things that Senator Carlin has uh, brought with him that he, he would like to talk to us about. And um, we'll see if Dr. Zogby's on the phone the other side of this break. Forum. This is Dr. Charles Goldman again with uh, State Senator Jim Carlin. And uh, before we get started, I'd like to thank a few of the local businesses that make the Fallon Forum possible. Gateway Market and Cafe at 20th and Woodland in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. Ed's Grocery Store, also a cafe for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has excellent catering service, and that is the Gateway Market and Cafe. Sergeant's Garage. As we know, Ed's Garage at 6th Avenue and College Street in Des Moines, where you always get an honest assessment at a fair price every time. Hawk Restaurant in East Village, where 90% of the food uh, served comes from the Iowa farmers and producers, even in the dead of winter. And then Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been taking care of critters big and small for over 30 years. So um, let's get back uh, in this segment. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get Dr. Zogby back. And... um, Talk with uh, Senator Carlin about some of the other things, again, that are not getting as much of the attention of the media um, and therefore the public uh, that's going on under the uh, Golden Dome there. Um, okay. The death penalty uh, bill. Sure. Maybe if you could tell our listeners what's in that <clears throat> and what you think of that. Well, it's, uh, you know, obviously the death penalty is, is pretty controversial. Mm-hmm. This bill is really limited to a specific class of crime that I think absolutely unequivocally mandates a death penalty. It's limited to instances involving the kidnap, rape, and murder of a child. Correct. And so, it has to be all three, I understand. you got to check those. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, if, if you're willing to go through that progression, it's pretty difficult to make the argument that uh, you didn't know what you were doing. And there was an intent. So, you know, you you kidnapped the child with the purpose of raping the child, and then you killed the child. Mm-hmm. So any inclination I would have to be interested in clemency of any sort is gone at that point for me. Uh, why why about this crime specifically? You know, I you know, I, I I think one of the problems with with crime in general in the state is the criminals aren't afraid. Uh, and if criminals are not afraid, they do bad things. And if you have like really meaningful sentences and penalties that I think are going to have a deterrent effect, if somebody knows, look, you do this, you're going to be executed. And at least at the very least, you plant that seed in that criminal's mind that, hey, if I do this, I could be executed. So, or if I do this, like a, a bill I tried to run last year, which amazingly did not pass in the House, was a bill to uh, make the sex trafficking of minors a Class B felony. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen. Um, if 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 the sex, you know, if the sex traffickers and these kind of people know that they're really going to be severely punished, to include death. At the very least, you're introducing that into their thought process before they commit this crime. And I, you know, I, I, I'm in favor of capital punishment in, in certain instances. This is one of them. Yeah, I, I am, I'm totally against the idea of capital punishment because um, I don't see it as being any deterrent to, to crime, especially in this scenario. Because someone who's going to kidnap, rape, and murder a minor is probably not making a rational uh, decision to do so. They're making a decision to do so. Um, Either that or they're just patently evil. Well, correct. 
<laughs> right? I mean, they are evil. My concern about the death penalty has always been the same, which is our system of justice is not infallible. I don't think you can justify it on the basis of it's okay to kill innocent people, which has been done in the United States. Um, it's not, to my mind, a deterrent. And it also, um, I guess the main other argument would be closure for the family of the victims. And, I'm, you know, if first of all, how long does it generally take to put somebody to death in the United States? Too long. Over two, you know, probably two decades in many yeah, cases. Probably so. Um, so I, I just... But here's the go, go ahead, ahead. Go ahead. I mean, I, I, I just, I just don't see what it adds. I think being put into a cage for the rest of your life is ample punishment. And many. Have you visited our state prisons? It's still a cage. It's still it's, you're behind bars. I've been, you know, I've been well, behind bars in a, a lockup in a precinct. Sure. You know, and, and the. But the, they're the, not kept. They're not kept in a cage. I understand that, but no. it's still you're you're in a a small area in which you, you cannot leave at certain points in the day. And mm -hmm. I, I just can't imagine living your whole life that way. I think that is well, plenty that's, of Well, that's a choice you have to that's, – that's a choice you make. So how would you feel about this then? If, if, do, you, do you feel that capital punishment is a deterrent? You, I I, you sound like you do. I do think it's a deterrent. And, and there, you know, the other thing is we're kind of saying we're not going to value the person who's been killed that much. The penalty, the justice component of it – you know, you can kill somebody, but it's not going to cost you your life, even though it costs them their well, it life. It does cost you your life. You, you're, you're locked up for the rest of your life. If you get that's caught. That's not a lie. If you get if caught. If you get caught. Well, that's true. Yeah. What you if you don't get caught? Or not. Right. What about the issue? I've, I've, always, I've always said I'll be for the death penalty when they apply it to white-collar criminals. Because to yeah. me, you know, people who uh, – like a Ken Lay, for instance, mm -hmm. a Van Rod. Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff. People who have – bankrupted pension funds, people mm -hmm. who have taken people's life savings. How is that any less injurious to somebody in many ways mm -hmm. than having murdered a family member? To me, if, if it it's would also it, it would get rid of it would get rid of the idea that we only apply this to people of color, which is the problem that the Supreme Court had with the, the, the death penalty. I'm not talking specifically in Iowa, but I'm talking in general. That was their um, Yeah, I don't think that argument holds water. Well, I, you know, I, I know that minorities probably have higher criminal conviction rates in the state of Iowa, and I. I well, no one's honest, been no one's been executed in Iowa for no fifty years. Yeah, so yeah, right. But I, again, I just feel that it's not a deterrent, and if any, if it would be a deterrent to anybody, it would be a deterrent to white collar criminals who know exactly what they're doing mm -hmm. every every point along the way, mm -hmm. you know. Um, well, you know, if along those lines, if, did Bernie Madoff go to prison for life? I think. Yeah, I mean, he is life sentence, right? Life sentence, yeah, yeah. So, um, he's not going anywhere. No, I understand that. But anyway, so um, other things I think that came up. We just, you know, recently a couple of days ago, um, the Iowa Supreme Court uh, decided that Medicare. Medicaid right. should pay for transgender surgery. Uh -huh. Now, is this something that's going to be taken up legislatively now because of that? Oh, or? I'm sure there's going to be a legislative response to it. I'm not sure what that's going to look like. Yeah. What do you think? And what do you, what, what do you, you know, I know you have an opinion about this. Am I crystal ball? Yeah. I, well, I'm against it. And the reason why I'm against it is it's elective surgery, for one. Um, for two, it's very costly mm -hmm. on a very tight state budget. And... Uh, if you made, you know, if it was if it was eligible for Medicaid recipients, you're inviting people from outside the state to come to the state to have that elective surgery done, which could really get expensive. And you know, as we talked the other day, there's some other things I'd rather spend money on. Um, I'd rather spend money on more screening of of newborns. Uh, you know, if, so so that you know, when you do a screening, you can know that there's certain. Certain risks, certain – like I have a granddaughter with PKU. Mm -hmm. If she had not had if that screening – If you tell the listeners what that is. I, I don't think I can pronounce it. It's a phenylketonuria. Right. Well, it uh, – if she has diet soda, she's, she's going to have brain Correct. damage. If, yeah. if she has any protein, mm -hmm. she's going to have brain damage. So unless she had that screening and you just gave her protein, she's going to have brain damage. So her diet is really, really restrictive – and it breaks my heart because every time she comes over, she's the sweetest little kid. Oh, mm -hmm. my gosh. But 
I look for treats. So when I go to the supermarket, I look for treats that have no protein. So every time she comes over to the house, she knows Papa's got a treat for her with no protein in it, whether it's uh, you know something she can drink or something mm-hmm. she can eat. But it's super rigid diet. But if she didn't get that screening, she'd either be dead or, or, or severely brain damaged. And so there are screenings that we're not going to do this year, four of them, where the instance is one in 40,000. Mm-hmm. The price tag for the one in 40,000 is $2.5 million. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd spend the money. Well, I think you, you know, you raise up, you raise an issue about how we prioritize medical, mm-hmm. of you know, medical care availability in this country. Sure. Um, in that, a lot of the sort of what you could call orphan diseases, for instance, mm-hmm. it's very expensive to develop treatments for them because there's so few people with them, mm-hmm. and the question becomes in a system which is meant not to be comprehensive. In all fairness, Medicaid mm-hmm. is not really meant to be a comprehensive health insurance. Mm-hmm. It's meant to provide what is generally agreed upon to be basic right. and important services. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, we have this tension in the medical system in this country because we're running a supposedly for-profit, a not-for-profit, but a for-profit system, or we mm-hmm. run a non-profit delivery system with mm-hmm. a bunch of for-profit people being its suppliers, right. pharmaceutical companies, equipment suppliers, et cetera, and, of course, the health insurers that take 20% off the top mm-hmm. um, of their premiums for their administrative costs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like how you slip that in there. That's right. pretty funny. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, listen, I, you should be on my side. Well, I, I, I I'm think— I'm very concerned about what our reimbursements are for our physicians. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Very concerned. And, and you know, it, as I, I think I've said on the show before, you'll notice that there's two buildings which are uh, sort of armored against driving a car bomb into them. One's the federal building, mm-hmm. and the other's Blue Cross Blue Shield. <laughs> <laughs> so That's very believable. <laughs> Um, so, but I think this this decision, the decision with, uh, to me within the yeah, law. Where do you stand on it? Well, that's what I'm going to say. Within the law, I believe yes th- th- that it should be paid for. I don't see it as cosmetic. Um, I'm not sure it is elective, mm-hmm. in, in 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 the sense I understand elective, which is that it doesn't. It's it's not something you have to do because it, it's a matter of life and death. Right. Although, of course, the issue of transgender surgery. And suicide among those who can't get it. Mm-hmm. I have not. I'm not current enough to know the truth of that. I know there's a 40 percent suicide rate. It, there's a very high suicide rate. Even, but my remembrance, because when I went to Washington University in St. Louis in the in the early late 70s, we were doing this already. Mm-hmm. There weren't a lot of places doing it. Um, and it was, from what I understood at the time, it, even with the transgender surgery, a lot of people still committed suicide because mm-hmm. of the issues that go along with sexual dysmorphism. So I think, from a civil rights approach, yes. I, I agree with the decision, but from what you're saying, and I think this is what Americans don't like. Americans don't like the idea that you can't get everything you want, and this you can. And this is this it's is not true. the role of government. No, well, and that's true of people at the top of the economic strata as well as at the bottom of our economic strata. I, think I agree. So with this that. has nothing to do with that. Poor people get advantages. Middle class people get tax advantages that are worth a lot of money too. Upper middle class and others get even more because of the way the tax code is favorable. That's another thing. The, it, this is a social justice question, and that's the point you raise, which is we we are being asked as physicians to make sort of uh, de facto decisions about social justice with no guidance mm-hmm. from our society mm-hmm. and with these kinds of things out there. Um, you know, because if you're – you know, the biggest killer right now of of many people who are not elderly is opioids. And right. it, is, it, it is expensive to treat people repetitively for opioid use, right. you know. But that is a ma- major health problem. Sure it is. Um, we have the issue of things like suicides right. that are going up. These are all – Well, just for a moment, just to speak to what you just sure. said. So right now in Iowa, on, on substance abuse issues like opioids – the reimbursement rates for our providers for substance abuse are not the same as our mental health providers. They get a lower reimbursement. A lot of them are going out of business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so then that's a big question for me. That's something that obviously needs revenue, and it's not going to get it this year. Right. And, and, and within the field, there's this constant fight for who is going to get 
um, whoever advocates more loudly tends to get more money. You know, and I'm it's sure not always it's not always it's not always commensurate to the actual public health impact of that disease. Mm -hmm. And you know, for instance, in the cancer world, any any cancer that has a lot of survivors tends to get a lot more money because there are people who have gone through it who now are energized by having gone through it. So, right. for instance, you'll see things like breast cancer, right. heavily funded, right. because there are a lot of survivors, mm -hmm. whereas. Lethal cancers like pancreatic cancer, esophageal to some degree, and similar cancers don't get the attention hmm. of the system I mean, because yeah. there's no one really survives long enough in many cases mm. to advocate for something different. You know, and, and that's the social justice part of this. So what I would say, my right. answer about this decision is as a political justice decision or as a legal justice decision, I think it's correct. It's not about them being transgender. It's, mm. it, it, it's simply that it's just like anybody else with a surgery that might well be indicated. But the question is, in a system of constrained resources, who gets the resources? And no, right. no one ever really wants to be seen as parsing resources because politically that's obviously not good for it. Right. Them. Well, it's, it's a reality, though. But it is a reality. So, I, I mean, I could, we could go on on many of these other yeah, issues. Yeah, we could. And, but we it's great. unfortunately don't have time. So I want to thank everybody good again for tuning in to the Fallon Forum. Uh, this has been Charles Goldman, your host today. Thanks to uh, Senator Jim Carlin for being with us. Thanks, Charles. You know, my pleasure. So if you're listening to one of the community-owned stations that rebroadcast the forum, stick around. We've got more conversation for you. Thanks to station manager Juan Rodriguez, producer Ashley Martinez, and production assistant Cherry Hedrina. sitting in for Ed today, Ed Fallon today, and um, I thought we'd spend this after segment on uh, an issue that has come up most recently in the past two years ago, will come up again, I presume, in the future, hopefully not in 2020, and that is the role of the Electoral College uh, set up in thwarting the will of the people. That is, that the uh, popular vote, national popular vote winner of the presidential election is not uh, deemed the winner. And we've had that scenario uh, occur uh, frequently uh, in recent times, and about six of the 45 presidents won one election in that manner. Um, the assumption most people have is that the only way to change the Electoral College would be to change the Constitution, therefore to amend the Constitution, which is a process that requires a two-thirds uh, vote of the states to uh, enact the amendment. And as you may re well recall, I think the most recent attempt at the uh, amendment, amending the Constitution, was the Equal Rights Amendment, which that was started in the 70s, and obviously that's not come, not come to pass. But interestingly, um, there is a, a, a surprisingly strong movement for a different solution, and that is to uh, go the route of enacting interstate compact agreements that states would give all of their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. And this, this compact would essentially go into effect when the states that are banded together in this interstate compact, uh, those states total a number of electoral votes greater than uh, 270, because obviously, uh, since there's only 538 electoral votes, 270 would be a majority. As of this date, 12 states possessing 172 electoral votes have already enacted the national popular vote bill into law. And essentially, the bill goes into effect if other states possessing a total of 98 electoral votes would go along with this. Now, a lot of the uh, you know, initial pushback um, is going to be that, well, this is the way it is because this is the way the Constitution said it should be. So what's interesting is that it, it wasn't into well into the 1800s that a popular vote was even taken for the president 
in every state uh, that was in the, the United States at that time. So the Electoral College comes to pass in an environment in which popular voting is not uniform. It also was a modality by which the uh, members of Congress, uh, correction, the members of the, uh, of the founding fathers were actually putting into place a, a somewhat anti-democratic system. In other words, they did not want the will of the people to be directly applied in terms of the selection of their uh, president and nor of their senators, because popular voting for the senators doesn't come to pass until over 100 years after the Constitution is signed. Um, and even the Electoral College itself was changed by the 12th Amendment because in the first four presidential elections, the uh, electors that the states selected, and they were generally selected by uh, a limited vote or a legislative vote or just simply appointed, uh, would have two votes. And they would, the first, the person with the most electoral votes would become the president, and the person with the second electoral votes would become the vice president. So you didn't, even though you may have run as a ticket, uh, you were assessed individually by the Electoral College. So what happens in 1796 is John Adams wins the presidency, but the electors basically withheld their second vote and did not vote for his running mate, Thomas Pinckney, but instead gave it to Thomas Jefferson, who was Adams' opponent. So you ended up with a government where two people who uh, at, at that time vehemently disagreed, um, one being the president and the other being the vice president. So the, the Electoral College was changed by the 12th Amendment uh, to avoid the possibility of this occurring again. So the other issue, of course, with the Electoral College was that um, the electoral votes were, uh, as they are now, based on population, and the uh, slaves of the South were considered three-fifths of a person, as disgusting as that idea is. Um, and I think we should all remember that these were, our founding fathers were not devoid of, of, uh, of things we consider racism now, obviously, and other things that we'd be uncomfortable with. Uh, yes, they were certainly philosophically heavily influenced by the Enlightenment, the European Enlightenment, and they certainly put together a, a political system that tried to reflect that, but they didn't reflect what things we believe now. But it, the, um, the Electoral College allowed undue influence, actually, to the southern states because of allowing the, the slaveholdings to be counted as population. Another question people have regarding the idea of an interstate compact uh, being valid is, is it valid? And according to Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, uh, state legislatures already decide how they apportion their state's electoral votes. And that is a power that is absolute. And in previous decisions, the Supreme Court has uh, confirmed that. Uh, also, the winner-take-all rule, which is in place in 48 out of the 50 states, wasn't even the original way that the Electoral um, College apportioned the votes. The original way was a combination of winner-take-all, as we do now, which is if you win the state, you get all the electoral votes. Um, but up until maybe 50 years after the Constitution was uh, enacted, uh, there were many states who were doing proportional uh, allocation of the uh, electoral votes. So the big question is, how do we change the electoral college? Now, you know, one idea would be to go with proportional uh, allocation of the electoral votes, which is done in uh, Nebraska and one other state that I can't remember at this time. And they basically would use the congressional districts, and each vote would represent each electoral vote would represent a uh, electoral a congressional district. So the problem there, of course, is that as we know, um, there's gerrymandering, uh, manipulation of districts to uh, get desired political results, and it totally depends on who's running the show in your state at the time 
that the uh, reapportioning of the districts is done, which usually follows the census, which is coming up here in the United States in two years. Um, so proportional allocation of the Electoral College would probably not lead to uh, any different outcome than we've already had, which is that it's not representative of the popular vote. The beauty of the popular vote idea is that uh, the winner of the election is the winner. The winner of the popular vote is the winner of the election. Now, people are going to say, well, you know, suppose it's only two votes difference and all these things. It's, it's never been that close. You know, a close national popular vote might be in the range of 500,000 voters. The most recent election, Hillary Clinton took the uh, popular vote by over three and a half million. And Barack Obama, in his uh, second election, I believe, won by 9 million. Now, the, those who might be against changing the Electoral College at this point are those who are advantaged by it, which has generally been, in recent times, the Republicans, who have, who have been able to control states uh, by having a, a uh, representative cadre going to the House of Representatives, that is well in excess of that, which uh, correlates with how, what percentage of votes they got in their state. Um, but for those of you on that side of the aisle, you, we might note that John Kerry, in his uh, contest against uh, George W. Bush second term, had he flipped 60,000 votes in Ohio, and those votes actually were highly contested because of the way the voting was handled once again by a Republican Secretary of State, uh, Blackwell, who was also the head of the campaign for the re-election of uh, President Bush. Uh, those votes were sent to, for reasons unknown, to a, a computer entity in Kentucky, and no one knows exactly what numbers were sent and what num whether the numbers coming back were actually valid because it was a locked facility that nobody could get into. But nevertheless, if those 60,000 votes had changed in Ohio, John Kerry would have been the president even though he lost by uh, well in excess of, I believe, a million and a half votes in that election. So it, it, it can well cut both ways. So I would say that it really is incumbent upon us to look at the, the very real possibility that uh, getting rid of five or six states determining the outcome. and. You know, small states say, well, the Electoral College helps us. It actually doesn't. The number, it, it, I think a lot of what goes on is people mistake the uh, activity of people coming uh, to run for the nomination with activity related to the election itself. So sure, Iowa uh, enjoys the year and a half before the uh, nominations are, are determined with, uh, you know, prior to the February caucuses, with candidates coming here and meeting with the people and doing retail politics out in the community. But in point of fact, 90 plus percent of the funds are spent uh, during the election, after the conventions, in 10 to 15 states. So there's nothing really about uh, the present system that would uh, increase the influence of small states. The, the fact would be that even if you spent all the money in the major states in the Midwest, well, cities with, uh, states with major cities like in the Midwest or on the coast, that's still only 25% of the population of the United States. You still have to win 75% in small cities and rural area. So a national popular vote would avoid a, a huge legitimacy issue, which is it's, to some sense, a ruling class of the minority with, you know, based on a system which has long outlived its usefulness, which should not be held in this sacrosanct view that it's held simply because the founding fathers came up with what was really a, uh, a bargain with the devil to be able to uh, make a union at the time that slavery was still being legitimated in uh, the American South. And... It's, it's doable. 98 electoral votes is, there's already, you know, another 24 legislators, legislatures that are looking at this. It wouldn't take a lot of them to go forward with this. Um, 
to maybe have the snowball effect of finally reaching the Magic 270 and getting rid of this archaic uh, election system that we have inherited from the Founding Fathers. Mm -hmm. So this is Dr. Charles Goldman for the Fallon Forum.